Hi, everybody. It's Mark Middleton with Bill Schaefer. We are glad to have you with us for yet another edition of Growing Boulder. Uh, as we hope you know, this is a program that will show you that it is never too late to live your life to the fullest. All of us, no matter who we are or what we do, can make a difference in the lives of others. Over the next hour, you'll hear from some pretty impressive people who found a way to make it happen in their lives who prove that you can do it too. And this is a great show today, Mark. It's filled with celebrities. We'll have a rousing conversation with Bill Nye, the science guy, on how he's inspired generations to learn about how the world works. We'll also have a personal and an insightful conversation with a World Series champion, both as a player and a manager, on how to be a winner at life. And you'll get a kick out of this. We'll talk to a man who, despite what he describes as limited athletic ability, hopes to soon become the oldest Winter Olympian in history. But first, a couple of big stars who happen to be a couple. Felicity Huffman and William H. Macy, ordinary people with inspiring stories. This is Growing Boulder. You are listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer. Great song from Harry Nilsson. And you know what? It's featured in a movie called Crystal. And what I like about this film, age plays an interesting dynamic. It's about an 18-year-old who falls in love with an older woman. She has a 16-year-old son, and that becomes an issue. And the 18-year-old's parents are a big part of the story, too. They happen to be played by a real-life couple, husband and wife, both actors you know. She, you'll remember, is Lynette from Desperate Housewives, uh-huh, and he, you know, from Fargo, Boogie Nights, and one of my favorite Showtime series ever, Shameless. It's great to say hi to Felicity Huffman and William H. Macy. Hi, guys. How you doing? Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Bill. Listen, congratulations on, first of all, doing The Unthinkable, a 20-year marriage between two working actors. How's it going? It's pretty good. Pretty (laughs) swell, I'd say. I couldn't be happier. As if I'm going to get any other answer in this interview, right? Hey, listen. (laughs) I got to tell you, it is odd that we hear it a lot, uh, that we've been married for 20 years and everyone acts like we cured cancer or something like that. (laughs) I don't know what it says about marriage in America. Um, We... I was crazy about this broad the first second I saw her. We both do the same things for a living. Um, She's nice. She wants what's best for me. And uh, it's not been difficult to have a good marriage. It's, um, it was a gift from the gods, if you ask me. You know, it tells us two things. It tells us what our impressions of Hollywood are, but it also tells us a little bit about what you two were like. And we were talking when we were uh, getting ready to have you on the program that you're both very comfortable people in your own skin. You don't seem to be chasing egos. You don't seem to be you know, wanting to plant your flag anywhere. You just love your craft. Yeah, I think uh, it's because of the theater, don't you think, Flicka? Yeah, I do. It's because we grew up in the theater, and um, it's such an unlikely way to make a living. And we both did it for the first half of our careers before we started making films. And it teaches you to be humble, and it teaches you to be very thankful every time a job comes along. Well, let's talk about this job. Not only do you both have roles in this movie, Crystal, but, Bill, you directed it as well. What was it about the script and the story that drew you both in? Will Aldis wrote the script. Um, it's my kind of humor. It uh, it juxtaposes pretty high tragedy with farcical humor back to back, and I love that. It's surprising. It's got a little magical realism in it. It's very, at its core, it's a very uh, heart-rending story. All the people in the film are good even though they do crazy things. Will Aldis has great affection for all his characters, and there are nine major characters, which is a burden for an independent film. But uh, it took 14 years to get this thing made because it's such a wacky plot. You know, I wanted to get your take on one of the scenes in particular in the movie Crystal, especially since you two are married and have raised a family. In the film, your 18-year-old son, you know, the scene where he brings his girlfriend to meet the family, 
the whole thing blows up because like every family, they all have their issues. But the kid realizes that that's what makes him who he is. So is there a lesson there about embracing those annoying things that, that make us all different? Wow, that's well put. Yeah, I, I'm going to hand that over to you, Billy. I think so. Uh, we've been asked a couple of times if our parent parenting skills were brought to bear on playing parents on film. I guess they... They must have been. Uh, it's our personalities. But uh, as I said, uh, I like everyone in the film. And Wyatt and Poppy, Felicity plays Poppy, I play Wyatt. I just adored them. They're funny. And interestingly, there's a blow-up between them. Um, Crystal has a very... Um, Rosario Dawson plays Crystal. And uh, when uh, Nick Robinson falls in love with her, he brings her home. And she's an older woman with a checkered past. And... It's just never going to work, that relationship. So it's probably, it's very stressful for his parents. But uh, I love how open they are, how funny they are. It turns out that, um, I, won't, I won't give it away, but there was a relationship between Wyatt and Crystal in the past. And Poppy, Felicity, finds out about it. But um, I don't know. These days, I want to laugh. I love comedy. I, I feel like the world needs to laugh, which is not to say only laugh, but this film combines a truly profound story uh, in a farcical manner, which is my style. I love that. And really, deep down, it's got a great heart. I mean, everybody learns from everybody. Everybody respects everybody else, even if they pick on each other. And they're all finding their way through life, which we all are. And this is another Mm -hmm. perception, I think, that we all have, that you two guys, such entrenched stars, life must be so easy for you. And I know, Felicity, you poured your heart into projects and shows for 20 years before you became an overnight sensation in Desperate Housewives, you know, you know what I mean? How, how did you hang in there in those days when you were building your career? Did you have seeds of doubt like, like the rest of us do? Oh, yeah. First of all, Bill, I wish you were all of our um, interviewers because you're really fantastic. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I'd go years without working or, you know, um, not making any money, and I tried to quit many times. Um, I think several things saved me. One, I have no other marketable skills, so I have nowhere to turn. I do remember a a point where I finally went, okay, the writing's on the wall. Nobody wants to hire me. And I went to uh, a beauty school and picked up an application because I was going to be a cosmetologist. And I got back in the car, and my agent called and said, well, actually, you have a job. Um, so how did I keep going? I was a member of the Atlantic Theater Company. That really helped. It gave me a home when I wasn't working. And, um, again, I just wasn't good at anything else. Well, you know, that's so hard for us to believe looking at things now because you're both fantastic. I mean, we can relate to you so much better than maybe more of the quote-unquote glamorous folks. And entertainment, this is almost the big crux of our show that we try to have conversations with people. The entertainment is such a cold business. It's it's not too friendly to actors as they age. But Felicity, in your 50s, you're finding great roles. And, and Bill, you may be the coolest 68-year-old out there. How have you guys evolved with the changes in your own bodies and appearances and lives that come with age? Well, wow. it is, it's, well. it's tough to be in this business because there's a photographic record of our <laughs> deterioration. <laughs> Um, you know, um, we're lucky. A couple of things have happened. One, I'm a baby boomer, and there's a bunch of us out there, and we've got money, and we still watch movies. So there, there's work out there for me. And uh, there's always going to be older people in the films, and God willing, we'll be upright, and we can still fill those roles. And then the other thing that's happened, which is great, is the explosion of television. Everybody's getting into television. I mean, go to L.A., you can't rent a camera, you can't find a soundstage, everybody's working, which made uh, casting Crystal, this film, very difficult to find someone who is available. Yeah. I, I also feel that, you know, Desperate Housewives, thanks to Mark Cherry, it came from an, an unusual source. You know, you'd think it was sort of women backing up women, which they do well, but, you know, Mark Cherry... Uh, a gay Republican who went, wait a second, women in their 40s are viable, 
and they can uh, make everybody money and be interesting and funny. And he created Desperate Housewives. And I think that changed the landscape. And, um, and I hope that it continues to change. But like Bill said, you know, we've been lucky. Um, we've been very lucky. Well, it also seems, though, that when, when someone is truly comfortable at their core with themselves and with who they are, age kind of doesn't become a factor anymore. And when you watch you guys as parents in the film Crystal, I'm not thinking, well, gee, there's an old couple. Obviously, they're the right age. It's like, oh, great. Look at these interesting people. And, and that's, that's the joy of the movie. And I think that's what, Bill, you bring to it as a director and the two of you bring with your acting skills. The film is called Crystal Check it out when you have a chance because, you know, anytime you see either Felicity or William, you're watching something that's pretty interesting. Thank you so much for the conversation, guys, and keep growing bolder. Up next, after 50 years in Major League Baseball, Davey Johnson will talk about winning at life. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with a newly expanded ER as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. Well, if you're a baseball fan at all, you probably know that Davey Johnson was one of the most colorful figures in the game. He's always found a way to win, both as a player and a manager. Davey's now in his late 70s, and he's still finding a way to win the game of life. Orlando, Florida, springtime home of the Washington Nationals, is one of the country's most delightful and beautiful resort cities. Tinker Field is alive with activity as the Washington Baseball Club begins its rigorous spring training drills. This was the time of year where dreams were born. That was especially true in 1953 when a young boy named Davey Johnson stepped onto a big league ball field for the very first time. Not as a player, at least not yet. And it was great. When I went in that locker room with all those guys, I made up my mind when I was 10 years old, I want to be a big leaguer. That's my goal. I'm going to be a big leaguer. What he would need was an opportunity. What he also wanted was an education, so he set his sights on college. When I was going to sign a scholarship at Texas A&M, Tom Chandler offered me a four-year scholarship. He was a very famous baseball coach back in the day. And he said, sign the contract. And so I I said, I'd like to read things. And I looked at it and said, one-year scholarship. I said, coach, you promised me four. That says one. He looked me right in the eye and said, that's the problem with the youth today, Davey. You're you're all looking for security and not an opportunity. I said, give me that thing. I signed it. And uh, that was a big, big lesson I learned. Not security, but opportunity. He learned not just to look for opportunity, but to leap at the chance. We have a lot of young ballplayers in here, and I think we have a lot of great prospects. Uh, I know we have about 10 candidates for my job, and so... It came from the Baltimore Orioles, where he would win four pennants and two World Series. This time, the glove belongs to Dave Johnson on this third inning shot by Pete Rose. Opportunity opened the door, but his positive attitude helped him walk through. He was a four-time All-Star in a 13-year career. And just as that ended, he found another opportunity he became a manager. He took the Mets to the World Series championship in 1986, three other teams to their league championship series, and he won manager of the year in the NL and AL before finally retiring at the age of 70 as one of the greatest leaders in the game. Pretty much everybody you ever managed probably feels like that guy cared about me. Well, you know, as a manager, you always wanted to do one thing, uh, to help the individual player live up to their potential. You didn't want to ever talk to him about anything negative. You always wanted to talk about the things he did well. And uh, 
because you wanted them to have, feel good about themselves, positive about themselves, uh, so that they would get the most out of their ability. And it, I, I feel like I've done that. You know, I knew uh, beforehand that life can be very difficult. Uh, it can have many ups and downs, obviously. I had many ups and downs in my career uh, with injuries and, uh, you know, poor seasons and, and stuff, but I had my successes. So I always think that you can pass that on to anybody, uh, how to stay positive. And, Davey, you've suffered some of the lows, lowest lows that anybody could. I mean, with, you lost a daughter. Yeah, Andrea was, you know, I, I had three, three great kids. Davey was my, my oldest and uh, Don. Uh, Don and Andrea were very athletic, uh, great swimmers. Andrea loved to go surf in the, the highest waves you can get. And I think she was at a point she even wanted to jump out of a plane. Uh, she was a risk taker, kind of like me. I feel like I'm kind of a risk taker. And uh, unfortunately, she got sick and, and passed away. Those aren't the only challenges. You've had, like everybody, you look great, but you've had health scares. You... You had half of your stomach removed. You had a heart aneurysm. How are you doing? And how do you? How does somebody who's an athlete, the the top of their craft physically, how do you deal with with these health issues? Well, that's a heck of a question because, you know, a lot of people don't understand. My body was my life. Uh, my feet, my legs, my arms, my eyes, everything was my life. And all of a sudden, when I hit about seventy-one. You know, now all of a sudden I got tingling feet, I got neuropathy, I got osteoarthritis, uh, had uh, arrhythmia, I had a bad stomach, and unfortunately they took out half my stomach and I had a ruptured appendix. You know, it's just, when you get older, you know, and my body provided such great success for me and, and uh, was such a good friend of mine, now it's kind of having a little hard time. You just have to accept it. That that's the way it is, and, and go deal with it. And people assume too, Davey, oh, you were baseball, you're, you don't have any financial worries, but you came in kind of early. I came in early. I mean, in my first year in the big leagues, I made 6500 bucks. Did you think your life was over when you took the uniform off for the last time? Oh, not at all. Because I always, ever since I put the uniform on as a player or whatever, I felt like you have to have challenges outside of uh, your profession. You have to have other professions. So many players, when they retired, uh, like Elrod Hendricks, when he retired, his life was over as far as he was concerned. He died. Uh, Flanagan, same way. I mean, but I saw it with many more cases other than that. Um, and I wanted to make sure that I had interests outside of baseball that would keep me mentally occupied and mentally challenged. Sounds to me like you learned as much as you taught. You do. If you don't learn... You learn every day. I mean, I'm still learning. So, so manage the rest of us. Help us scout. What are the characteristics that make up a winner in life? Well, you know, everybody looks at somebody's ability, you know, especially in baseball, you know, in, in their mannerisms, whatever. To me, the best, most important thing is their makeup. What's their drive to succeed? And that comes from within. And here and here. I've taken players and won championships with guys that had half the ability of other players. Can you teach that, Davey, or are you born with it? Uh, I think you, you get that through your upbringing and the challenges you face that are early in life. That'll do it for Davey Johnson. And he went out there like he was a man on a mission. You're managing at 70. You fall in love again and change your life and get married in your 50s, yeah. life after 50 wasn't bad for Davy Johnson. No, it was great, you know. And uh, it may be some of the best times of your life after 50. Yeah, you, no question about it. And I don't, I'm not really one that really looks in the past. You know, I, I live today. There's been plenty of challenges today and then tomorrow. That's basically how I've always lived. Every day is the most fun day of my life, and that's what I go by.
Coming up, you never have to stop doing what you love. At least so says the greatest rock climber of all time. You'll meet her next. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Center for Health and Well-Being, opening in late 2018 in Winter Park, will bring wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. Learn more at wellbeingnetwork.org. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. Bill Schaefer and Mark Middleton here on Growing Boulder, and our next guest is a pioneer, Mark. She's, she's a true icon in her sport, considered by many the greatest all-round rock climber who's ever lived. She not only made climbs thought to be impossible, but along the way she smashed stereotypes, and she changed the perception of women in her sport. Yeah, and, and perhaps the greatest example of that, Bill, was back in 1993 when she made the very first free ascent of the sheer nearly 3,000-foot rock face on El Capitan in Yosemite Valley called The Nose. Uh, and, and really for years, there was almost a pilgrimage to Yosemite by the best climbers in the world hoping to achieve what was considered to be the unachievable. And not only was she the first to free climb the nose in 1993, something that took her four days, she went back the very next year and did it again in less than 24 hours. And here's where the story really gets compelling. No one not a man nor a woman was able to repeat her successful climb for over 10 years. She was that far ahead of everybody else. Let's say hello and catch up with the legendary Lynn Hill. Lynn, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. Well, you know what? We just love... So I was just going to say, as a matter of fact, uh, this year marks not only the 60th anniversary of the first first ascent done by Warren Harding, uh, Wayne Mary, and Joe Fitchin, but it was... It's also the 25th anniversary, if you think about the dates, 1993. So a lot of a lot of things have changed in the last 25 years, and I'm now 57 years old. <laughs> I was about 33 when I did it the first time, and I'm going to go back and free climb it again with a young woman who's um, 31. No way. When is that going to happen? In less than a month. That is exciting. So you are, are obviously working out right now. Before we talk about it in specifics, let, let's make sure everybody understands, including Mark and Bill, what we are talking about when we, when we talk about free climbing, because you are without question, bold, daring, ingenious, clever, strategic, but you are not crazy. In a successful free no. climb, there is a rope for protection, correct? But not assistance. This is correct. It, it's a sort of a misnomer. When they hear free climbing, they think of free soloing which means without a rope. And so that's not what we do. Rock climbing is what it should be called. It's the art of rock climbing. It's the sport that people practice when they go to the artificial climbing walls. They're not using their rope to get to the top of the wall. That would be pointless. The whole point is to climb up the wall because it's fun to climb. There's something innately satisfying to use your body in that way. So we're just adapting our ourselves in terms of like hanging on with our fingers to the little edges or if it's a crack you get your hands and feet inside the crack so it's it's a little bit like a a ballet routine and the rock itself is the choreographer Hmm. you know lynn we, we listen to you describe that in our minds and the picture in my head is one of sheer terror how much of what you do is is the adrenaline rush from from just the fear and how do you get over that well there's several stages when you're learning any kind of sport particularly with climbing fear is it's one of the first places that most people start with Um, there are ways to start climbing that feel very secure and very safe but even still our irrational mind is doesn't know that when you look down that you're not going to actually just fall. So you have to go through the teaching of, yes, I have a rope and I'm tied in, and you double-check and triple-check everything. You make sure that all the systems are safe and in place. And then even if you fall, you're not going to die. You're going to swing on the rope probably. If you're a leader, that's usually somebody that's had more experience, although I have to admit my first day of climbing ever 
way back in 1975 with my older sister, who was afraid to lead herself, showed me how to put all the stuff on, a harness and the, the knots, and gave me some shoes. And then she pointed up and said, you lead now. <laughs> so most people don't lead their very first climb because the leader actually has to put in the protection as they go. And obviously you're climbing above your protection until you get to the next piece so you can fall down. And plus there's rope stretch. And if your belayer is not paying really close attention and has a big loop of slack, you'll fall even further. So it's, it's very important to pay attention to all these safety features. But once you've been climbing for you know, not even that long, it's all very simple. You know how to tie your knot, you put on your harness correctly, you know how to use the gear, and it's it's not actually as complicated as flying a plane or something like that. But the challenge all, you know, after you get past that fear lies in how you um, climb up the face. And on the nose, that was so sheer and so blank that people couldn't see how to hang on. And it took a very intricate uh, sequencing and body positions and strength in order to do it. And so let's talk about that, because El Cap was thought to be unclimbable by just about everyone. You were uh, a young woman in a male-dominated sport. You had very few role models to inspire you to think that it was possible. Uh, and I'm guessing that there were many who quickly dismissed your attempt altogether. What led you to believe, Lynn, that you actually could do it when so many others, so many big names had tried and failed? Because I've been around long enough in in the sport to know that there's a certain attitude that I don't necessarily agree with that's not going to get in my way. I know what I'm capable of, and I had proved it time and time again. I was on the cutting edge even as a a teenager. I was hanging out with people that were eight years older than me, and, um, and I matured probably faster because of that, and I took responsibility for my own life pretty young. I, I went up to Yosemite when I was 17 years old and climbed half them. I can't even believe my parents let me do that, but I'm one of seven kids, so I think being responsible for yourself was kind of necessary in a big family. And I just I, I was empowered by doing, and I think that that's the way life is. If you want to do something, just go after it because you're never going to have what you think you need until you just get into it, and then you start learning, and then you know what you don't know, and then you start learning what you don't know. And and it's the same in climbing. There's no rule book. It's just really an attitude. That's a great answer, Lynn. And, and look what you accomplished just by following your passion. You helped not only open up the sport to women, you made it more popular all over the world. You proved that women are capable of climbing anything that a man can, and that's a powerful and important legacy that transcends your sport. So how do you feel about your place, not only in the history of climbing, but but also in our culture? Well, I, I think it's a very important aspect, and I'm, I'm proud that it's been effective, and I'm not alone in that. I think that once something like that starts, then there, there gets a lot of attention and, and people and energy around it. I'm not going to say U2 is exactly what I'm talking about, but look how popular the U2 movement got just over the last year or so. And, you know, for me, looking at, you know, mainstream kind of concept like this, I'm thinking, what are people imagining that, I mean, these kinds of issues have been happening since the beginning of time. And now suddenly we're giving this special attention as though we didn't know it was happening. Of course. And, And this is how, I viewed things as a little girl that, you know, why should the boys have all the privileges and why should they have, you know, the better deal and and we get no power or money or anything. And just look at the history books. Look at third world countries, how women are treated. It's clear that it's not fair and it's clear that it needs to change. She is a remarkable person and a true inspiration, a, a powerful example that you never have to stop what you're doing, what you love, and we can all continue to find a way to say yes to adventure in our own lives. Folks, if you'd like to learn more about Lynn, her books, her courses, check out lynnhillclimbing.com. Thanks, Lynn. Up next, a visit from 
Bill Nye the Science Guy on the true wonders of life. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... The Masson Spine Institute, where world-renowned, minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masson Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at MassanSI.com. Growing Boulder is on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to connect with the most inspiring people online. Surround yourself with the motivation needed to live large at any age. You are listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And don't you love these days how easy it can be to get where you want to go? You just put your destination in your GPS. You follow along step by step. I was thinking, Mark, wouldn't it be great if we had a GPS for life? You know, I guess some people are lucky enough to know exactly what they want to do and follow closely along the footsteps of others. But what about the people who have to find their own way, whose calling in life is unique or different? Yeah, our next guest is definitely on a path of his own. This guy is a science educator, a mechanical engineer, a New York Times bestselling author, and the host of the Emmy-nominated Bill Nye Saves the World, which you can find on Netflix. He's the CEO of the Planetary Society, which was co-founded by Carl Sagan, and he is inspiring those young and old to open their minds to the wonders of science. Let's say hello to the one and only Bill Nye, the science guy. Hey, Bill, how are you? Greetings, greetings. Well, well, thank you so much for being with us. We know how busy you are. And you know, when we all first got to know you back in the 90s, your show more or less was aimed at kids. But your Netflix show lets you deal with some very interesting topics like uh, the possibility of time travel, evolution, climate change. What's it like now to be inspiring both adults and kids? Well, it's the coolest thing. So, you know, many people who watch the show used to watch the Netflix show, used to watch the science guy show in syndication and on pbs and so now we're addressing topics that are more complicated require a little more thought than the fundamentals of science but the fundamentals are very important everybody let's not forget that so uh it's cool and netflix has been very supportive and uh we were able to do things that we just could never do on the kids show because we have people committed to it like we we had a guy we flew a guy in from Australia to talk about zebra finches, what in Australia they call zebra finches, and their place in the scheme of things in evolution is very cool, just best by way of example. You know, Bill, one of the great things about what you do, though, is you know, when we're kids, we're sponges, we're curious, we, we just want to drink in all this great information. Then we, we get older, we go through life, and the sponge kind of hardens a little bit. But you're the guy that makes us start to think again, that gives us back that sense of wonder. I'm here for you, man. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. There's nothing more exciting to me than discoveries associated with science. I mean, there's nothing cooler. So, I, uh, you know, when you're in love, you want to tell the world. So that's why I do these shows. And I think most people are envious of someone like you, Bill, who seemingly kind of has a passion that you've had for your entire life. And, and somehow that passion has led you on a great adventure career-wise. What's your strategy in terms of what you want to do or how you want to do it? Do you just kind of let life come to you, or, or do you go out there and make things happen? Oh, God. No, no, I go out, I mean, I believe, I believe, this is controversial, I believe I'm exercising free will. (laughs) One of the shows is about the nature of consciousness, and we talk about free will quite a bit. But I believe I direct my energies to work on television, to engage people, to, in this case, save the world. And understand, the world's going to be here no matter what we do. I want to save the world for me, for humans. Or you, uh, humankind. And one of the things, Bill, that we think you do, too, is you shine kind of like the beacon of the next iteration of education. Because through the Jack and the Geniuses book series, which is, go- is doing great with middle schoolers, you're kind of showing that, that, that life is not just memorizing facts, but it's about lighting that spark of curiosity in people. Well, what we want is for people to understand 
to grasp, to embrace the process of science. And the word that's on my mind the last year, year and a half, is enlightenment. Thomas Jefferson and those guys were, uh, were part of a movement that historians call the Enlightenment, where we use the process of science, the reason, the ability to reason, rather, and the phrase everybody loves nowadays is critical thinking. We use critical thinking to understand the world, to not only understand that the world is round, that there is electromagnetism, that there's gravity, and uh, chloroplasts and green plants that we depend on when they transpire and make oxygen for us to breathe. That's all good. But the Enlightenment guys were also into designing a government based on the same ideas. This is to say we can, we can come up with a system that's robust, that as the citizenry changes, as uh, we ex- move across a continent, there will be a, a system of government that will be suited to that. It's really it's a huge idea. We're living at a time right now where the ideas of the Enlightenment are being set aside, but I believe they will bounce right back very soon because you can't compete economically if you deny science and the process by which we know nature and our place in it and so on. We're talking with Bill Nye, the science guy, who's got a great show on Netflix that's called Bill Nye Saves the World. And Bill, I'm curious about what you said earlier. Uh, You know, you're trying to save the world for all of us, but but in truth, aren't you really trying to to save the world from us? Uh, and I think you just alluded to it uh, right now. It's difficult to separate science and politics these days, and uh, it's very clear that there there is a divergence of opinion about uh, you know what really is happening. Well, let me talk briefly a, a, a detail, a semantic detail, a use of language detail. Science has always been political. We don't want it to be partisan. In other words, where you're going to commit your resources as a government involves politics. Where, where are you going to spend money on? involves people negotiating. We're going to build a, a NASA center in Texas or Florida or Minnesota or Cleveland. That takes negotiation and politics. But the facts of science we don't want to be arguing over, but... The, thing, the only thing you can count on in science, like everything else, is that things are going to change. So we want people to embrace the process that uh, we work our way to understanding of the universe in small steps, increments. Did that answer your question? Sort of. Just you can't, you can't deny climate change, everybody. That's got to stop. And when the young people become voters, when young voters outnumber old voters, things will get, we'll get things done on climate change right away. Well, it's a, it's a great point. I mean, uh, and the, the bottom line is, is life is about curiosity and life is about opening our minds to, to ideas that maybe uh, don't seem quite right at first, or maybe they do, but it's just... Well, this is, this is the thing about astronomy. It's every time you find out... <laughs> something else about astronomy, it turns out the Earth is less and less significant. But it's our Earth, doggone it. (laughs) We love it here. And we love you, too, and we love having you around to help make us think. He's on Netflix. He's got a documentary out, too. He's he's writing books. He's everywhere. So the best thing to do to know exactly what's going on and when, check out his website. It's BillNye.com. Our thanks to Bill Nye, the science guy. Up next, a man who has his sights on becoming the oldest Winter Olympian ever and how he hopes to make that happen. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingboulder.com slash subscribe.
You're listening to Growing Boulder. I am Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And why would anybody in his right mind want to jump on a sled and hurl himself down an icy mountain at over 80 miles an hour? Well, at the age of 21, Ruben Gonzalez took up the sport of luge and he started training for the Olympics. Four years, and at least that many broken bones later, Ruben made his Olympic dream come true. It's a great story if it ended there, but that was just the beginning. He kept training, he kept working, he kept losing, and now he has his sights set on becoming the oldest Winter Olympian ever. If he makes the team in Beijing in 2022, he'll be 59 years old. In the meantime, he's written his fifth best-selling book. It's called The Courage to Succeed. Let's get a little shot of that inspiration now from four-time Winter Olympian Ruben Gonzalez. Ruben, how you doing today? Doing great. How are y'all doing? You know, something told me you were doing great. I imagine you find a way to do great each and every day. And speaking of doing great, your book is doing great. You're all over the place now doing motivational talks. What's, uh, what's the Gonzalez message? What are you telling people? You know what? I try to take people's excuses away. Everybody uh, lets fear of failure and fear of the unknown uh, hold them back. And through my uh, crazy uh, Olympic story, I try to give them hope, sprinkle a little pixie dust on them so they'll face their fears and, uh, you know, charge on forward. And you mentioned crazy Olympic story. And, and yeah, it's really different because anyone who thinks of you just as a luge competitor is missing the point. Yeah, it's a passion of yours. But isn't it true that even maybe a bigger passion is the study of success and, and how to achieve it? That's a great point. Uh, You know, ever since I was a kid, I was intrigued by what makes successful people successful. We live in the land of opportunity, and what are the principles? And um, and I've been a student of success all my life, and uh, now I just try to pass the torch uh, to people, uh, whether I'm sitting across from them over coffee or or in front of a big crowd at at an event. So give us an idea, Ruben, about why you've uh, done what you've done, because longevity in in any sport is is unusual. Longevity in Olympic sports is almost unheard of because you only really get to go for it once every four years. And longevity in a sport that has seen so much technical evolution as yours has makes it even more difficult. How have you been able to to, to put yourself on a luge in, in four different Olympics? You know, my coaches say that I'm like an, like a really old car that doesn't have that many miles on it. I've taken a lot of breaks, and that's actually worked for me. It wasn't planned that way. It's just the way it happened. Uh, the first two Olympics, Calgary 88 and Alberville uh, 92, I did back-to-back. Uh, but then I took a six-year break, and my coach convinced me to get back into the game. I started training, and I made uh, the uh, Salt Lake City Olympics. Another six or seven year break, and uh, I uh, I made the Vancouver Games, and now I just came back after another. I have a weird seven year itch. I get bored after seven years. I got to get back on that sled. And the the coaches, when I came back, they said you're sliding better than ever. You've been sitting in that desk so long, you know, building your business. We need to, uh, you know, you do a little yoga and stretching. We're going to stretch you out, but mentally you're stronger than ever, and uh, we, you got a shot. And that's all I can ask for a shot. You know, you're in your, your 50s now. Do you still look as good in that luge spandex as you did many years ago? <laughs> you know what? Uh, the, I think the the catalyst for this last comeback is I I had started to put on weight. You know, it just crept up on me. And I made a decision that I wanted to, I wanted to look good again. And, and I lost 25 pounds. Wow. And then uh, I was on this uh, magazine uh, shoot. They wanted me to put on that luge suit. I put it on, I looked in the mirror, I thought, hey, looking pretty good. And that just started percolating those ideas, and that's what made me come back. So uh, to answer your question, I'm believe it or not, I'm in better shape than I was in college. Wow. I may not be as fast, but I, I look better in that loose suit. Let me, uh-huh. <laughs> let me qualify that. <laughs> and that's what I try to get across to people, you know. Uh, just because, you know, you might have a little ache and pain here or there, that's okay, you know. Mentally, you're stronger, and you have all this knowledge and wisdom. Man, why not? And my my hope is that when I break this record, I don't want it – I'm going to break a record that's, that hasn't been broken in over 70 years, since 1924. And I hope that my Olympic record doesn't last but four years, because my goal is to inspire other guys and other gals to 
get out of the, you know, get out, get back into that arena and, and, uh, you know, do it. You know, that's what's so interesting about you, Ruben, because your story, from your point of view, isn't really about you. It's about the rest of us, because your story is, here's a kid who was the last person ever picked for any sports team, the last person anybody ever expected to excel, certainly in any kind of athletics, but you found a way to do it, and you found a way to stick with it and succeed. What can we learn from you? You know, when I climbed uh, a few years ago, uh, I, I read Hemingway a lot when I was a kid, and he put all these ideas in my head. And a few years ago, we hired a guide and climbed Kilimanjaro, and the last day was 18 hours of, of climbing. And I've never been so tired in my life, but I realized that, gosh, we can do so much more, you know? Uh, don't let that mind tell you that you're too tired to keep going because uh, you've got so many reserves. And so you can do more. I think that's, that's the main thing. All of us can do more. We're talking to Ruben Gonzalez, who's going to make an attempt to become the oldest Winter Olympian ever in 2022. He's already a four-time uh, Winter Olympian. And, you know, Ruben, one of the many things we like about you is your message, and you mentioned it earlier, uh, about taking risks. Because as people get older, you know, by nature, we seem to become more and more risk-averse. And when we don't take chances, uh, our world just becomes smaller and smaller and smaller. What have you found works when it comes to inspiring people to get out of their comfort zone you know when i was a kid my dad got me uh reading biographies he said if you'll study the lives of great people you'll figure out what works and what doesn't work in life because success leaves clues so i started reading them and my favorite ones were always the ones about people that had to overcome huge challenges to make their dreams come true uh the, the general patents the uh, uh the mother Teresa, the helen kellers the wilma rudolph when i read stories they took my excuses away. And so now through my story, uh, how a bench warmer that didn't even get started in the luge till he was 21 got to go to the Olympics, I want people walking out of my, my uh, presentations or after reading my book, I want them thinking, man, if that guy can go to the Olympics, we can do anything, right? I want to uh, put a little pixie dust in their life and, and fill them with belief because if you believe, you have belief today, and, and, and you believe that something's possible, you got power. You're ready to take action. And if you want it badly enough, nothing will make you quit. Yeah, something else, Ruben, that never goes away, and I'm not sure if you agree with this or not, we all have the desire to do something great. You know, we all want to be somebody that other people look up to. Doesn't it seem, have you found that as we age, we start to believe that that's less and less possible? I think that, uh, yeah, most people uh, let that that mentality, right, that, that poison get in their mind. But, I, but again, uh, we're wiser, uh, modern you know, medical techniques and, and, and uh, proper nutrition. And, you know, if, if, I think anybody can thrive uh, much longer than they think. And so uh, I think it's possible. You just have to – I tell people – the same thing my dad said, who are you going to hang around with, right? If you hang around people you respect and people you admire and people that are doing things, you'll start picking up their habits. You'll start doing those things. You'll start thinking like them. But if you hang around a bunch of people that are whining and complaining and, and uh, you know, bragging to each other about all their um, medical issues, then, uh, you know, that, that's where you're going to go. It's, it's all about who you hang around with. You know, this guy is interesting. He's inspiring, and man, he can help you discover how to make your life more fulfilling. The book is called The Courage to Succeed. Our thanks to four-time Olympian Ruben Gonzalez, and good luck on your quest to be the oldest winter Olympian. We have heard from some pretty impressive people on this program, but folks, uh, as we hope you know, this is all about you. So take a minute to think about you. What's your growing boulder story? What do you want to be? Think about it, craft it, and then find a way to start to live it. That is a great point, Mark. So here's what you can do to get going. Go to growingbolder.com, subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, like Growing Boulder on Facebook, watch Growing Boulder TV. It's time to surround yourself with energy, optimism, and inspiration. Don't waste a day just going through the motions. Take control and start living your life to the fullest. That's Growing Boulder. 
Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing Boulder, it's not about age. It's about attitude. Oh